Now, congregation, if you can imagine with me a congregation in Asia Minor, and this congregation is made up of Christians who come from a Gentile background and other Christians who come from a Jewish background. What a radical difference there would be between those two groups. The Jews who were raised with the law, the Old Testament, who were raised with a strict observance of all the different Jewish traditions, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food laws, and so on and so on. And the Gentiles, who more than likely were redeemed by God out of a life of debauchery and sin and wickedness. They knew no law. They knew no Bible. They knew no Old Testament. They were a law unto themselves until God, by his powerful grace, called them out of darkness and brought them to himself. And the Jewish Christians as well lived equally in darkness, although it was a religious darkness, right? And yet God called them to, the, to, to come and to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah King and to be saved through him. Now you have both of those people in the church. I don't think I have to say too much else here. Because, right, those two groups are obviously, there's going to be some conflict between them. Many of the Jewish Christians did not give up their Jewish practices just because they became Christians. Some of the Jewish Christians looked over the aisle at the Gentile Christians and said, hey, they don't keep the seventh-day Sabbath. Shouldn't they be circumcised? Why do they do eating ham? Right? All these things. Right? And the Gentiles would look over at the Jewish Christians and say, what's wrong with you people? We've been set free by the gospel. Christ has set us free from all those mosaic laws and traditions, whatever they were. Didn't really know them that much myself, but don't you remember the Apostle Paul? He was here one time, and he taught us these things. And he taught us that circumcision, uncircumcised, makes no difference. What makes a difference is that your heart is circumcised. And as for the food laws, those have all been brought to an end. And you can see right away, right, there would be conflict between these two groups. Now, the book of Hebrews, my friends, is written especially to those Jewish Christian people. Because you can imagine that also amongst those Jewish Christians, there was this pull, this tug, right, to return to the religion of their fathers, to go back to the Jewish religion. Now, I don't know how many of you, most of you, I believe, grew up in a Reformed household. But some of us did not grow up in a household that was so Reformed. And so this is an experience to which we are more acquainted. You often feel that pull, that tug, right? Because that's, that's when you're raised with something, that, that, that gets deep in your DNA, as it were, doesn't it? And, and you can't just shed those things at the snap of a finger. And you come to Christ and you're saved, and immediately now everything that you were raised with just goes away. Well, that's what these Jewish people were struggling with. Many of them were facing persecution as Christians. And you can imagine that their Jewish parents, again, their parents were not Jew or were not Christians. And I hope I'm not confusing you, right? There's people who remained Jews, right? But there were also people who were raised as Jews but had come to believe in Christ. They were Jewish Christians. Well, the, their families and such, which were still Jewish, not Jewish Christians, you know, I'm sure they would talk, right? And they would feel that pull back to the traditions of the fathers and a very strong hold on them. That's why many of them continued to observe Sabbath on the seventh day. Many of them continued to keep all the Jewish traditions and laws. And Paul said, that's okay. Paul said, it doesn't matter. You don't need to keep them anymore. 
but you may certainly do that. Well, now this author uh, has written this letter to this church, and he's written it specifically to these Jewish Christians. And the one message of the book of the Hebrews then is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The religion that Jesus brings to us is a better religion. It actually, it actually fulfills the Jewish religion. In fact, I think if you, if you talk to Paul, he wouldn't really acknowledge that there even was such a thing as a Jewish religion. Because Paul would have seen even what we call the Judaism as Christianity just in its unfulfilled form. And Christ had come to put the capstone in place. And so the whole book of Hebrews then argues that Jesus is better. Sometimes you can see that even in the subheadings that our Bible gives to these different chapters. Now, it's not quite as obvious in, in the Pew Bible, but in my own Bible here, the first heading that is given me in Hebrews 1 is Christ is superior to the prophets. And the heading that begins in verse 5 is Christ is superior to the angels. And so you hear that theme, don't you? Jesus is better. Christ is superior. Well, my friends, I'd like to look at Hebrews chapter 2 with you. This is a difficult chapter. I tell you, I, I had to spend a lot of time trying to, trying to understand how the apostle is reasoning through this. By the way, very likely not written by the apostle Paul, but very likely written with much of his thoughts and his theology. I actually believe that Apollos wrote Hebrews. I don't have proof for that. I have good arguments for it, though, which I'd be happy to share with you sometime, not now. At any rate, let's turn then to Hebrews and look at chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, where we read that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And let's stop there, because there the author is teaching us and he's agreeing with his Jewish audience that God spoke to us through the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Malachi, and so on. Those prophets spoke to us. But now here comes his point, which he's going to develop in the whole rest of the book, Verse 2, and I'm in chapter 1 now, chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, and for the apostle, and for the, for the author here, the last days are right now. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. Here's the thought that we had this morning. Remember when we looked at the second commandment after the reading of the law, that Jesus is the image of God. And verse 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And it goes on. So Christ is superior. That will be now the message of the book of Hebrews. Now when we come to verse 5, and again, I'm still in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 5, we see Paul beginning the argument that he's going to continue on into chapter 2. So for to which of the angels, says Paul in Hebrews 1 and verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Jesus is better than the angels. Now let me say, friends, that the angels don't figure large in our theology, do they? We don't talk a lot about angels. In the Jewish religion, however, 
there was a great deal of belief in angels. In fact, the Jews believed that the law was given, that God came down on Mount Sinai, but that it was angels who gave the law to Moses. And Paul seems to accept that belief, by the way, as well, uh, in various verses of the New Testament. But the angels were very prominent in Jewish religion, in Jewish thought. And so Paul now is, I keep saying Paul, I mean the, the author here, is, is teaching that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he gives these proof texts in, verse, in, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 5, and again in verse 6, and verse 7, and verse 8. All these proof texts that he gives from the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he continues on through all the rest of chapter 1. He ends in chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? In other words, this is the task of angels. Angels are ministering spirits. And Christ is superior to them. Angels are servants. They are ministering spirits. But Jesus is on another level, a much higher level. Then we come to chapter 2. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is one of these sections that uh, scholars of, of Hebrews call warning sections. There are these warning sections. In fact, you find, if you look in the organization of the book of Hebrews, that there will be a, an argument made, and then there will be this time of a warning section. Really, I would compare it to a, a, a section of application. The author seeks to apply. He seeks to drive it home to the conscience of his hearers. Look at verse chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Again, he's taking the truth that he's been teaching and he's making application of it. How will we escape, verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation? Right? You can hear it. It's an exhortation. It's an application that he's making on the truths of what he's been teaching. Well, then we come to our text. Because now in, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he returns to his argument that Christ is superior to the angels. And my friends, uh, this is tough going. I, I hope that you'll have your Bible open before you and that you'll follow me verse by verse. First of all, we have then in verse 5, we have in verse 5, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So now the author is going to say that the world to come, which is, we would call it, the kingdom of God, which was brought in by Jesus when he was born, when he began to minister, you'll remember that he announced, Behold, the kingdom of God is here. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That's the kingdom of God. That is that, that, that time period in redemptive history when the Lord Jesus Christ came down as king to this earth. Between his first coming and his second coming. It was begun at his first coming. It will be consummated and completed, finished. Well, not finished. It will be consummated, really. It, it will be brought in its fullest glory at the second coming. That is the world to come. And the author says that God did not subject to angels the world to come. In other words, it was not angels who came to earth to be the king of the kingdom. It was not angels who came to earth on Christmas Day, born in a manger, born the king of Israel, where, and Christ set up his kingdom here. No, God did not subject the world to come to angels. That's verse 5. That, you might say, is the reason 
why Christ is superior to the angels. And now Paul gives us, or the author gives us a proof text. A proof text. And that comes from Psalm 8. And he says in verse 6, but one has testified somewhere. By the way, that, that doesn't mean that the author forgot where it is. That's a very common expression in the writings of the time that uh, this is a scripture with which we are all familiar. Everybody knows this text, right? If I said, for God so loved the world, I wouldn't even have to finish it, right? We all know what that text is. And that's what the author is saying. We all know this text, Psalm 8. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, as you read that, my friends, and certainly as I read it the first time, you think, doesn't that prove exactly the opposite of what the author is trying to prove? He's trying to prove that Christ is superior to the angels. But this text says in verse 7, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. It seems to prove the opposite. Well, again, as I said when we read Psalm 89 this evening, here is where the author of Hebrews, and of course the Holy Spirit speaking through the author of Hebrews, teaches us how to understand these Old Testament texts. So try to follow me here uh, tonight. That when the author is quoting from Psalm 8, he says, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? He's purposely being ambiguous about man and him and son of man and him. Again, you've made him, verse 7, a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him. You have appointed him. You have put all things under subjection under his feet. When we read Psalm 8, we read a psalm about the dignity of man made in God's image. We read a psalm where God is saying in that psalm, where, I'm sorry, where the, where the psalmist is speaking to God and praising God for his, for his uh, greatness. And he, in, in that psalm, he's saying, God, you have made man just a, a step lower than the angels themselves. You've crowned man, that is mankind, humanity, with glory and honor. And we actually just studied this when we went through Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis chapter 1, God made man in his own image, male and female created he them. God crowned man with glory and honor. And then God gave him the mandate, right? We called it the creation mandate. And that's at the end of verse 7, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. But see, now the author of Hebrews is going to understand that psalm in a more in a higher level, in a more ultimate reading of who that man is. And he's going to read that man as a Messiah man, as the Son of Man, who, of course, is Jesus himself. So we see kind of this double meaning to this psalm, don't we? Now, we don't have a right to do that to the psalms, right? But under the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews teaches us to read Psalm 8 on this higher level, Because if you read it on just the lower level, it proves the opposite of what he's trying to prove, doesn't it? You have made him lower than the angels. But now when it's read on this higher level, now we begin to understand the author's argument. 
right? What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. See, now when we read it that way, now we know that we're reading about the Son of Man, the Son of God. And we see the Son of God is appointed and crowned with glory and honor. He's appointed over the works of your hands. He's made king, and everything is placed in subjection under his feet. So there's the proof text given us to prove that the angels are less than Jesus. He goes on then in verse 8, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing, and by the way, now him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Again, that him is, is, is I believe on the author's part, purposely ambiguous because he wants to see, uh, he wants us to see that with this double meaning that yes, initially it referred to David, but ultimately it refers to the son of David. He left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Then in verse 9, but we do see, and now here the, you might say the, the cover is pulled off, right? We do see him. And I see that in our translation. Now they capitalize the him. Capital H, right? Because now there's no ambiguity anymore, right? It's Jesus. We do see him. Now my friends, a comment about verse 8 there before I move on. Because here is an objection. This is point two on my outline. There's an objection here. So the author says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now here's the objection. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And the meaning of that is, my friends, that when we look with our eyes, we don't see that the Son of God is ruling over this world In fact, we see quite the opposite. It seems as if the son of darkness is ruling the world. It seems as if Satan is gaining the victory day by day. We see with our physical eyes not everything put in subjection under the Son of God and under his feet. We see the opposite. How can you say that Jesus is superior to the angels when it doesn't even appear that Jesus is is ruling our world as it exists now today? My friends, I believe I saw a, 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 a such a powerful example of this yesterday when my wife and I went to a funeral in Grand Rapids. And we saw this, this poor mother carrying her baby into the church. The baby had lived for one hour after it was born. It had so many defects that it could only survive one hour. And here's this mother and, this, and her husband carrying this little casket up the aisle. Now, my friends, you, you, you tend to think in your own mind, this is not supposed to be. Babies aren't supposed to be born and then die an hour after they're born. Is that Jesus' rule? Is is that all things being put under subjection to the feet of Jesus? When these poor parents, weeping, carrying their child up the aisle in a coffin? It does not appear that all things have been subjected to him. Now, my friends, that's why I put on the outline, this is what we see with our human eyes. With our human eyes. But now our author says, let's look with the eyes of faith. Let's look with the eyes 
that God gives us when we open his word, when we see the world as God sees it. Now we see a different picture, my friends. Now we see a different picture. And he says, verse 9, but we do see him, capital H, we see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Again, because there's still that objection in the back of the mind of the reader. Didn't Psalm 8 say that man was made less than the angels? And now our author says, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ was born in a manger on Christmas morning. He was born under reproach. He was born under in poverty. He was born low. And he was made, but notice what it says there. If you go back to Psalm 8, the quote from verse 7, you have made him for a little while. In other words, temporarily, he was made lower than the angels. And that's repeated in verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And now, my friends, put on the eyes of faith. Now the author is going to lead us into the truth of what we see, not with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. And at the end of verse 9 there, he says, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see that, my friends? He says, when you look away with the eyes of your physical eyes, your human eyes, and when you look with the eyes of faith, when you listen to what I'm telling you, I'm telling you how the world really is. And now you see the truth. That when Jesus went into the, into that, into the way of humiliation, when he went into that way of reproach, when he was born on, on this earth less than the angels, when he suffered the reproach and the reviling of men, when he had not a place where to lay his head, and when he was finally nailed to the most uh, horrible, most uh, revolting, and the lowest form of death known to humans in that culture and in that time, he was nailed to a cross. In that very hour, my friends, and in that very way of humiliation, he was crowned with glory and honor. And in dying, he put death to death. That's not something you can see with your human eyes. That's not something you can see with your physical eyes. You can only see that with the eyes of faith. What a beautiful, what a, what a mind-blowing truth this is, isn't it? That when Christ went down into death, he was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let me just make a little parenthesis here, my friends, because I know that we're going to wonder about that, that word that says he might taste death for everyone. It's possible that the author could mean here that he tasted death for everyone in the sense that the death of Christ was sufficient, right, to atone the sins of everyone. That's certainly one possible meaning there. However, I, I suspect, though, that the, the... And by the way, in the Greek language, it just says he might taste death for, for all, Right? And the all is an adjective there. And then you, you, you supply the all what? Well, the most natural meaning would be every one, as the, as the translators have given it to us. But in the context, right, we can see that it's the many sons to glory in verse 10. He died for the many sons to glory, to bring them to glory. Now, again, it could mean 
The other meaning, I, I tend to lean, though, more for the more limited meaning, right? And this is what we mean as Calvinists when we talk about limited atonement or particular redemption. He tasted death for every one of those sons that he's leading to glory. That's, again, just a, just a parenthesis to help us understand that expression. But, my friends, I want to go back to that point, that in this, in this, in this man, Jesus... He just looks like a man to our human eyes, a suffering man. We see the the glorious plan of God. And it goes on in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that is, for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. So that's God the Father, who is bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author, now that's Jesus, the author of their salvation or the champion of their salvation through sufferings. My friends, this is the teaching of our author now in this. This is the teaching of God's word. That God the Father, he prepared, he set Jesus up to be the savior of his people by, pass, by having him pass through those sufferings, that reproach and that way of humiliation. And by passing through that way, He was fitted, he was prepared to be the savior of his people. Why? Because God the Father had a plan in eternity past. God the Father had chosen a people for himself. And he now commissions his son and even enters into covenant with his son to save those people. And so Jesus Christ is, again, I don't say this irreverently, but Jesus Christ is a man on a mission. He has been sent by God on a mission to earth to save those people and to lead those many sons and daughters to glory. And how does he do that? He does it in a way of suffering. And that's why, my friends, when those Jewish, when those Jewish Christians would begin to question the Christian religion, how can I, how can I put my faith in a man who, who died on a cross? How can I put my, my faith in a man who is born from a penniless peasant and his wife, born in a, in a, and raised, born in Bethlehem, but raised in a city like Nazareth, some kind of ghetto. It just doesn't seem fitting that he would be the great Messiah King that we all get behind and that he leads us in triumphal procession. And the author says, you've got it so wrong. You need to read your own psalm. Because when you read Psalm 8, we do read, that he was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. But that very suffering and humiliation and death was for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And verse 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Now my friends, here we have for both he who sanctifies, so that's Jesus, he's the one who sanctifies his people, and those who are sanctified are all from one. And I hate to do this. I, I do, but I, I don't believe that is the correct translation there when it says one father. Now, you'll notice in our Bibles that the word father is in italics. And so that means that the translators supplied that word father. But in the Greek, it, or in the original, it just says, who are sanctified are all from one and actually, it's very much like the word all before. You have to supply then the all what or the one what. Well, many 
uh, Bible uh, teachers, commentators, books that you read do say that it's, they're all from one Father. But here's the problem with that. Notice the next part of the verse which says, For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I don't see how that follows from saying they're all sanctified from one Father. Why, why, would, it, why would the fact that they come from one Father mean that he is not ashamed to call them brethren? So I take the position here, my friends, that what it means here is that both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one nature, are all from one human nature. They all are flesh. And that is, of course, the reproach, that is the humiliation through which Jesus had to pass. It was fitting, I'm sorry, uh, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one human nature. And now, of course, it makes perfect sense, right? For which reason, because they're all from the same human nature, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That Jesus can now look at the human race of people and he can say to them, I have entered into your nature. I have become a human person. I have taken on flesh. Now, this is also the teaching later on in the passage. We read in verse 14, I'm I'm not considering this this evening, but just to cross-reference this, you can see in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he also took on flesh and blood. And we read of the the purpose for it, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Well, my friends, I, I know I spent considerable amount of time on that. But that's the teaching of this passage, that Jesus went through this humiliation, and by this he earned the right to bring, to lead God's sons to glory. And then he does lead them in triumphal procession. He does lead them into heaven and gives them the victory. That has not happened yet, but it will happen. And my friends, we come then to my first point of application, and I'll be brief on these. My first point of application, God's plan. And again, I I think about us having now entered the Advent weeks And what a great blessing and privilege it is, my friends, to think about the overarching message of Advent. When we look at Christmas, when we look at Christ being born in a manger, the Son of God taking flesh, we realize, don't we, that this is just one step in God's plan of salvation, in His eternal decree, which began in eternity past. And now Christ is the great executor, you might say, of God's decree. He comes down to earth to put into action, to realize God's plan. And he does that in a way of suffering. Now, my friends, that's a beautiful thing to to consider, that God the Father had a plan. God the Son puts that plan into action. And what what a blessing for our faith then to take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ as the author, the champion of our salvation. And when our faith falters, as those Jewish Christians did, when we see his suffering, when he doesn't look like a Messiah king to us, we have to understand the teaching of Scripture that when Christ passed through suffering, he was crowned with glory and honor. He won the victory by suffering. I saw this amazing video once 
It's incredible. It was an art competition. And this man was, he had a, a uh, canvas in front of him, and he was painting on that canvas. And he had only one minute to do it, so he had to go very fast. And he was going along, making marks here and dashes there, and he was just flying. And, of course, we all, you know, the judges, the three judges standing there and the audience looking on and looking. And you see more puzzled looks as this man goes on. His painting is garbage. It makes no sense at all. It looks like he's making just purely random dashes and, 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 and globbing paint on here. And it, was, it was just black and white. And even one of the judges actually even told him to quit. Just stop. What are you doing? Until he finished. Beep, 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 beep. There went the alarm. His 60 seconds was up. And suddenly the man took that painting. He flipped it upside down. And instantly, everybody gasped. Everybody saw the perfect painting. It was a headshot of of somebody, I, I forget who. But done perfectly. Everybody looked at that painting and thought, it can't possibly, this man can't be painting anything of any value. And suddenly, with the flip of that canvas, everybody saw it. And my friends, isn't that a, in, a, in a small way a picture of how we understand the Lord Jesus Christ? And especially in this Advent season, when we see him so unlike a king, you could hardly, you could hardly write a story that's more unlike a king coming onto this earth. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a feeding trough for cows, and and born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. And you think to yourself, this can't possibly be a king. Until we put on the glasses, we look with the eyes of faith, and then we see it as God sees it, that through death, he conquered death. Through suffering, he was crowned with glory and honor. That's the beautiful message, my friends. The beautiful, counterintuitive message of Advent. The suffering servant, king of all. What a masterpiece worth studying. Just as all those people gasped when that picture was turned. I wonder, my friends, if we have time and all the hustle and the bustle of the season to see that picture to see the Lord Jesus Christ suffering and yet conquering. I hasten to my second point because the second point, my friends, just is the same application that the apostle gave us in chapter 2 and verse 1. This is the word of salvation which we have received. And the author says in verse 2 of chapter 2, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, why is it so great a salvation? Because in verse 3, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In other words, the message that came to the children of Israel through angels, and again, probably referring there to the law, if that was great, and every violation of it was punished severely, how much more awful will be the punishment of those who hear the voice of the Son of God and who see his message confirmed with miracles and signs and gifts? gifts of the Holy Spirit. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And that's also the message of Advent, my friends, that Christ came into this earth and he suffered, but only those partake in his victory who put their trust in him. And the author says so powerfully, how will we escape 
if we neglect so great a salvation. You know, if you're on the run from justice, if you've committed some crime, and every day you're fleeing, hiding, moving, trying to stay one step ahead of the law, but finally they catch you. Maybe you can escape for a long time. But my friend, if you're not a Christian this evening, if you haven't put your trust in him, in that son of man, the son of David, then I must ask you this evening, how will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Well, let me answer for you. You will not escape. You cannot possibly escape the justice of God. It will find you. And if you die in that condition, my friends, you'll be turned into eternal damnation forever and forever. I hope, my friend, that you will hear this evening this challenge to you. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? I hasten to my third point because you do not need to neglect that salvation. But tonight, my friends, and this speaks now to all of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian, this text calls for faith. It called for those Jewish Christians. It called for them to lay aside their doubts, to lay aside their misgivings, and to put their trust. You know, in one sense, this sermon is so much like this morning's. There's that little sprout. That's Jesus. He seems so low, so humble. But our text calls for us tonight for faith. And I put this... I I have to stop, but I put this in here from John Owen. I'll let you read that on your own. But basically the point of what Owen is saying is there, is that when we believe in Christ, we believe in the Father. We believe in God. Because Christ came on a mission from the Father, as as we learned also in this text. God had the plan to bring many sons to glory, and now Jesus comes to put into effect that plan. And we put our faith in Christ. And by putting our faith in Christ... We put our faith in God. My friends, what a, what a wonderful season it is to see the low, humble coming of Christ at his first coming and to look forward in anticipation to his second coming, which will not be humble and will not be low, but will be with great triumphant glory. Then we will see with our physical eyes him crowned with glory and honor. May God grant that we might find him our Savior here, that we might find him our King and our Lord then. May God grant it. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this evening in astonishment, Lord, at this picture that with our physical eyes appears to make no sense at all. And yet, Lord, when that picture is turned, when we put on the eyes of faith, oh, what a picture we see. The Son of God coming to this earth crowned with glory and honor, not for himself, but in order that he may bring many sons to glory and that he may taste death for every one of those sons. Lord, we, we, are, we are brought to our knees to, in worship and to say hallelujah. Praise your name, Lord, and grant that we might live our lives to your glory now and forevermore. Lord, I pray for anyone who may be gathered here who in their own heart's experience knows nothing of these things. Lord, I pray that they may see a beauty and glory in the Savior this evening that they have never seen before, and that they might put their trust in Him, and that they might find their life in Christ. And that they too might with us one day be led into glory, in triumph, behind our champion, behind the author of our salvation, our Lord Jesus Christ.
In his name we pray. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal again to number 334. 334. This is the song of Simeon. Now may thy servant, Lord, according to thy word, depart in exaltation. And what follows then in these two verses of 334. Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Mm -hmm.